scripture reading this evening, it comes from the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so first Sunday of the year, New Year 2020, and it's a question that we've kind of been asking, but I'll ask it again. What have you been reflecting on? As you've been thinking about uh, the year maybe of 2020, uh, I know, we, hey, we had a big shift. We went from a nine to a zero, so uh, maybe some of us, we've reflected on more than just the last year. Maybe we've reflected on the last decade. So for the last uh, little more than a week, it was about nine days, uh, my wife Amy and I, we went to St. Louis, and we got to have a great time hanging out with some family and friends, and uh, it was really good. Well, one of the things that I actually uh, reflected on as I was back in the, the city that I grew up in and visited a lot of my old haunts and, and saw the church that I came to know Jesus at, uh, actually, I, I kind of began to reflect on my own faith story. I began to reflect on my faith journey, and I realized it, was, it has been filled with many highs and many lows. I'm going to read to you a few of them that I thought were kind of pointed. Uh, in August 2003, that's when I would have said, if I had to give you a date a month, when I said, hey, I really believe this now, uh, and there's actually a change in me, I believe Jesus is Lord, I would have pointed back to August 2003, right before I started school in my senior year of high school. And I was driving down Highway 94 in St. Charles, Missouri, and I came up to a red light. And I was so enthused about Jesus, and I was so enthused about uh, this new experience of God's grace that I believe I, I was experiencing. I rolled down the window, and there was a man who was a complete stranger in the car next to me, uh, and I'm waving at him until he got, I got his attention. And he rolled down his window, and he goes, can I help you? And I said, no, but I will need you to know Jesus loves you. <laughs> I remembered that when I was driving down Highway 94 just last week. But then I also remembered, as I sat in my parents' basement, that only a few months later, see, that was August 2003, December 2003, because the girl that I wanted to date wouldn't date me. I remember sitting in the chair in my parents' basement, and I thought, God must not care about me because I'm not going to date this girl. In June 2004, this is the, the month that I would have told you, that I still would tell you, that I believe God called me into ministry. Uh, and I felt like my life was going to be changed forever, that I, I switched the path that I was going to, an undergraduate and whatnot. And by the time I was getting ready to uh, graduate from undergrad, it was about April 2007, 
I had an incredible crisis of faith because I didn't believe that actually God had a plan or direction in my life. In 2000, August 2008, uh, I believe that God wanted to stretch me by calling me to go to a new location, uh, a new context where I had never ministered before ever, Shreveport, Louisiana. And then in April of 2009, I shook my fist and I said, God, you wasted a year of my life by calling to me to this hellhole called Shreveport, Louisiana. In September 2009, I believe that God wanted me to work in a mega church. September 2010, I believe that God wanted me to work in a small church. In September 2015, I believe that God wanted me to plant a church in St. Louis. And in September 2016, I believe that God called me to plant the very church that we're in right now, a church here in Westerville, Ohio. In September 2018, in fact, September 9th, 2018, I believed that God loved Story Presbyterian Church. I believe that God loves Story Presbyterian Church, and that one year later, by the time we hit September 2019, we would be in here with guarantee, no questions asked, at least 50 adults in the worship service. And then in Easter, April 2019, I went home that night after preaching my first Easter sermon, and I asked God, do you actually want our church to grow? Do you actually want us to carry out our mission? Do you care about us at all? Now, uh, I don't honestly believe, for, you know, those of you in the room that I'm familiar with your faces and whatnot, I don't believe that any of you, you know, have had me on a pedestal, but I sure hope as I, you know, kind of walk through, you know, my own faith journey, all the, the doubts, the highs, the lows, all the things that really in the last, you know, close to 20 years uh, I've walked through, if there was a pedestal, I hope it's on the ground and I hope it's crumbled in pieces and, um, Certainly, I don't want to say to you, uh, follow, follow me as I follow Jesus. Paul says that uh, to some of the churches he planted. That's not something I'm going to say to you, follow me as I follow Jesus. But here's the thing. Although the titles, the experiences, the different things that I just named, although they're unique to me, I don't actually believe my faith story, I don't think my faith journey is completely unique to me. You see, when I read Scripture, and when I talk to you guys, and when I talk to people, say out in Westerville, when I'm at Java Central, or I'm at Governor's The Cigar Shop, and I hear about people's spiritual journeys, I hear that there are kind of all sorts of highs and lows. There's all types of times where people have such great uh, confidence and assurance that, sure, God is there. And then there are other times of great doubt and great struggle and great fear. And I just kind of want to say for a moment, I actually don't think the highs and the lows are necessarily all that wrong. In fact, I think sometimes the highs and the lows, I think they actually talk to us, they show us what a genuine faith does look like. But nonetheless, there were mistakes that I made. And I, I realize as I reflect on my own story, and I look at the times where I experienced great lows, if I were to really try to problem-solve this thing, if I were to really try to sum it up for you guys and, and sum it up for myself, uh, what was the greatest struggle that I had? What is the greatest struggle that I still have in my own faith journey? I would describe it like this. 
I struggle with having a little view of God. You see, when God gives me what I want, he's good. But when he denies me the thing that I think I need in this moment, he must not be good. And how fickle is that? If our faith is really dependent upon how we feel about God in any given circumstance, in any given moment, well, that's going to be a faith that will always be filled with struggle, that will always be filled with doubt. Again, not that I'm trying to say that those things are bad, but as we look to the year of 2020, both as a church and as individuals, and as we dream and as we plan and as we look to the future, and as we, as we hope, here's the thing that I believe um, we need to learn this evening, and here's the thing that I hope we're able to do every single day this year and in years coming. I hope that we can learn this. God is greater than we can ever imagine. God is greater than we can ever imagine. And I believe that if there's a character in Scripture who really kind of can demonstrate this for us, if there's a character in Scripture who gets this truth that God is bigger and greater than he could ever imagine, well, actually, I believe it's the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul, when we look at his writings, specifically when we look at writings in two books that we're going to look at this evening, the book of Ephesians and Philippians, we see Paul, of all the struggles that he has and all the things that he had to wrestle through on his own faith journey, he has a big view of God. He has such a big view of God that one of the things that Paul encourages his audience to learn is that they can always be content, that they can always hope, and that they can always live for Christ. Those are going to be the three things that we're going to look at uh, this evening in our own spiritual journey, in our own spiritual stories. Yes, in our own spiritual formation, we can always be content, we can always hope, and we can always live for Christ. Those are going to be the three things that we're going to look at this evening as we look at the character and some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. So you guys may uh, have heard of this man before. He has a book written about his own story. His name is Jim Stockdale. Now, Jim Stockdale, if you don't know who he is, I don't know if Jim Stockdale is still alive today, but he was imprisoned in a POW camp in Vietnam from 1965 to 1973. Now, here's the thing that makes Jim maybe stand out from all the other POWs that uh, were in Vietnam. He was the highest-ranking U.S. military officer uh, that was captured. So, for these eight years, and uh, colloquially, kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek here, they refer to it as um, uh, uh, Hilton, Hilton, the Hilton in Hanoi, uh, um, Jim Stockdale experienced horrific torture he had been through, he had been beaten, uh, he had been imprisoned, and he had been tortured over 28 times throughout his eight-year imprisonment. But because he was the highest-ranking officer that was there, all of the other POWs, all of the other men, they looked to him for leadership. They looked to him for guidance. They looked to him for encouragement. And so there's actually an incredible story. If you read uh, the book that he and his wife wrote, it's about their love letters that they exchanged that 
were a little bit love letters, but they're actually like, you know, a code they came up with that, that Jim, even when he was a prisoner of war writing to his wife, was trying to send back intelligence to the U.S. Um, but anyways, as this was going on, uh, Jim tried to encourage the men, and he tried to lead, and he tried to be uh, what the people under him needed. And then he, one of the, many people have interviewed him, many people have asked, hey, how were you able to do it? Eight years in a foreign country, you had no end to your time, uh, you didn't know if you were going to live, if you were going to die, you experienced this torture, you had to be strong when others were weak, how did you do it? How did you do it? And to this day, uh, there's this... Um, there's this term that came up because of Jim Stockdale, and it's referred to as the Stockdale Paradox. Jim Collins interviews him in the book Good to Great. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said when I asked him. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event of my life, which, in retrospect... I would not trade. I didn't say anything for many minutes, and we continued the slow walk toward the faculty club, Stockdale limping and arc swinging his stiff leg that had never fully recovered from repeated torture. Finally, after about 100 meters of silence, I asked, who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, he said. The optimists. The optimists? I don't understand, I said, now completely confused, given what he had just said 100 meters earlier. The optimists, oh, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. Another long pause and more walking, and then he turned to me and said, this is a very important lesson you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. To this day, I carry a mental image of Stockdale admonishing the optimists. We're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. So it's a pretty, you know, cheery note to start a sermon on. Uh, <laughs> To hear, to hear all those things. But if I were to sum up, what is the Stockdale? Uh, what is the Stockdale paradox? It's this. Retain faith that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Now, it's in a completely different time and in a completely different context and in completely different circumstances. But the Apostle Paul, I believe he understood this paradox long before Jim Stockdale ever was able to do it. So I told you that this evening we're going to be looking at two books that the Apostle Paul wrote, uh, and it's going to be the book of Ephesians and Philippians. Well, one of the things that we see here in Scripture that I believe it's going to make the Apostle Paul's words just profound, and I'm about to read them to us here in Philippians chapter 4 is as he's writing this letter to a church that he had helped plant many years ago, he's in prison. And then we read the story of Paul, and we understand everything that he had experienced and everything that he had gone through. His time in prison, 
his time trying to serve the Lord, his time going from place to place, from country to country, uh, it wasn't a walk in the park. Paul experienced great hardship. He experienced great suffering, and yet he says that he knows the key to contentment. He knows the key to contentment. It's a profound statement. I'm in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. He says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have reviewed your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Jim Stockdale, the Stockdale paradox, it was that long definition, retain faith, but be honest about your current circumstances. Paul says a similar thing right there in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, here's the thing. There's a lot of people that I think they want to talk to you about Christianity. There's a lot of people who want to say, here's what a genuine faith looks like. Here's what it is, because Jesus is Lord, because he's died and risen again. Uh, God has uh, uh, everything that's going to be good for you. You will no longer experience hardship. You will no longer experience sorrow. You will no longer experience suffering. In fact, some of the largest churches in the United States, maybe even some of the largest churches here in Columbus, that's the message that they try to preach, and that's the message that they try to deliver. And I can't help but think that is such uh, an anti-biblical message. You see, the Apostle Paul doesn't ever say that we won't experience suffering. In fact, if we read the whole book, the book of Philippians, uh, a couple times, chapter 1, verse 29 in particular, he says that, hey, uh, it's actually just the opposite. Because Christ Jesus has suffered and died for you, he invites you into suffering. You see, Paul in prison, he's having a moment there in Ephesians, or excuse me, Philippians 4, where he's celebrating the fact that people cared enough about him to give him a cloak because he went to bed cold every single night. And the Philippians, who he once pastored over, sent him a cloak through Epaphroditus, and now he has this. But he's saying, hey, with as much as I am thankful, I need you to know that even if you never sent this to me, I need you to know this, I still would have been content. I'm content not because I have things. I'm content not because I don't have things. I'm content because God has everything that I need. You see, in our own lives, I think a real and genuine spirituality, a real and genuine faith, I would actually challenge you with this, and I believe the Apostle Paul would challenge you with this. We don't pretend that our struggles aren't real. In fact, I don't think that's helpful for anybody. Our struggles are real. Whether it's we're having a hard time at work, we're having a hard time in relationships. Can we go so far, and I'm going to be so vulnerable as to say, hey, uh, maybe we had expectations of what we would look like here as a church 18 months in, and perhaps those expectations aren't being met. We can name those things, and we can acknowledge those things. Yet in the midst of confronting the brutal facts, 
we can still know, we can still experience contentment. Again, not because that our struggles aren't real, but because they are real. And here's the thing. Our loneliness, our suffering, the heartache that maybe we've experienced this last year or this last decade because we've lost a loved one or because we've realized that 10 years down the road, uh, our expectations haven't been met and life is not what we thought it was going to be right here, right now. When we read Philippians 4, when we look at the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the work of Jesus Christ today, right now, again, we don't, we don't tell ourselves that our suffering isn't real, but we tell ourselves that our suffering is not bigger than our God. It doesn't make our suffering less real, doesn't make our suffering less painful, but the key to contentment in our spiritual lives, in our, in our emotional lives, in our marriages, in our work, in everything, the key to contentment is by knowing God is bigger than all of these things, and He is continuing to be at work. That's what Paul is to say. I found the key to contentment, whether I have much or whether I have little, I can do all things through Him who, who strengthens me. And so I hope, I hope you would be encouraged by that, that no matter what your circumstances are in this given moment, again, uh, they are not beyond the control of God, they're not beyond the care and sight of God, and He is bigger than your circumstances. He is bigger than your suffering and your sorrows. And if we look to Him rather than our own pain and struggling and suffering, well, again, it doesn't make it less real. I'm not trying to put a Band-Aid or a silver lining on it but it does mean that we can hope. And that's the second thing that we can look at. Not only can we always be content, but in the scripture that I just read a moment ago, I think in Ephesians chapter 3, that's exactly what Paul's getting at. Hey, listen, we can always have hope. On top of contentment, we can have hope. So, true story, uh, and I looked and I verified this, this happened in 1991. Uh, a guy who I could not actually find his name. I don't know if it's been revealed since then. In this story, by the way, uh, I totally ripped it off from another pastor who preached a sermon on this text. So um, I didn't find this originally. Anyways, a, a guy is going to uh, a yard sale and he sees this picture frame. And he looks at it, and uh, there's this, this old oil painting, and he goes, I don't think a whole lot of this oil painting, but I really, really like this picture frame, and I think on this wall in my house, it would fit perfectly, so I I'm going to buy it. So he haggles and gets the price down, and he ends up buying this oil painting in this picture frame for $4. Well, he takes it home, and he gets home, and he starts to, to take apart the frame, and as he's doing it, the frame breaks, and he's going, oh, man, I only wanted this for the frame. What a waste. And uh, he gets the frame apart, and he throws the frame away, then he's getting ready to throw away uh, this canvas oil painting, and he sees that there's kind of, there's a piece of parchment stuck to the back of the painting. And so he peels it off, and he looks at it, and it's folded up, and so he kind of unfolds it, and he reads right there, oh, this is the Declaration of Independence. So he actually doesn't think much of it. Um, he thinks, oh, you know, this is a copy of a copy of a copy. And uh, I, I believe as the story goes, he put it on display. 
Well, one of his friends uh, was, is really into collecting old Americana, uh, specifically stuff from around the Civil War era. So he has his friend over from dinner, for dinner one night, and his friend sees him and goes, hey, I think you may have something on your hands here. You should probably look into this. And so it was kind of one phone call after another after another where he brings in all these different appraisers. And before you know it, he finds that he has one of 24 still in existence today original copies of the Declaration of Independence. One of the things that makes this actual uh, Declaration of Independence so unique is it was written so quick, folded over, you could still see like where the, uh, the ink actually spread a little bit. He gets it verified and ends up going into auction at Sotheby's in New York, and what he had bought for $4 because somebody thought it was a piece of rubbish ultimately gets sold at that time in 1991 for $2.4 million. Imagine with inflation, if that was today's time, we're probably looking a little more like, you know, $10 plus million for something that he purchased for $4. You see, the man who originally had it, he didn't realize the value of what he had had. Uh, the man who originally owned it that sold it for $4, he thought that that's all that that was worth. You see, in some ways, that's actually what Paul's doing here. He, he's almost making this comparison here in Ephesians chapter 3. You see, he's writing to Christians, mind you. These are people who believe in God. These are people who have experienced the grace of God. These are people who uh, actually, when we look at, you know, church history and we look at the rest of the New Testament, they're, they're um, commended for a lot of their stuff. And in Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul is writing to these Christians, what does he say? He hopes this for them that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses, surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, Paul is saying, hey, don't you know that this relationship that you have with Jesus Christ, uh, you're never going to get to the root of it. You're never going to find the full value of it. You're never going to know how good it is. So I pray and I hope every single day that you would continue to grow in this knowledge, that you would continue to grow in this grace, that you would continue to have a big picture and a big vision of who God is. Not that you're getting it all wrong, but sometimes you're walking around and treating your relationship with God like it's worth $4 when it's worth $2.4 million. Can you continue to look to Him? Can you continue to believe that He is trustworthy? Can you continue to believe that He can do more than all that you can ask or imagine? It's an incredible thing that Paul says yet he gets it. He has a big, big view of God because he has a big experience of the love of God, of the height and the depth and the, and the, and the, the experience of God. He has a big picture of who God is. 
And so I think when we look at Paul's writing, also in prison, to the Ephesians, I think that we learn this. At a bare minimum, and I'm going to use, you know, a little bit churchy language here, it is sinful for us to lose hope in God. It is sinful for us to lose hope in God. Hope that God could help our marriage. Hope that God could help our children. Hope that God actually cares and, and, and can do something about our relationship with family, with friends, and our community. Hope that God can continue to work and help us to fulfill the mission that we believe he has called us to here at Story Presbyterian Church to help people discover how Jesus redeems their story. Not because we're good, not because we have all things figured out, not because we are so skilled and passionate that that we can do all these things, but God can. God can. That's what Paul is trying to help the Ephesians understand, and that's one of the things I think we need to understand this evening. That yes, because God is bigger than we can imagine, we can always be content. And because God is bigger than we can ever imagine, we can always hope. In our personal lives, in our work lives, in our church lives, whatever it may be, we can always hope because of the work of Jesus. And finally, not only can we find contentment, not only can we find hope, but we can find a reason to live. A reason to live. So we're kind of going through here, you know, parts of uh, Ephesians, parts of the book of Philippians. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm somewhat kind of working through Philippians uh, backwards here. But Paul, uh, he just, he says some incredible things. And if we just look at them, you know, pull them out and by piece, it's like, wow, what you are having to say here is actually incredibly profound. What you're having to say here, it's uh, incredibly significant. You see in the book of Philippians chapter 1, Verse 21, I would argue this is one of the most uh, well-known scriptures when people want to talk about scripture, but Paul says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, and if we know Paul's story, we know that's actually a pretty significant thing for him to say, because it's actually only two chapters later that Paul will go through and, and he'll reflect on his own spiritual journey. He'll reflect on his own faith life. And he'll remember that, you know, if we were to put it in today's language, Paul, uh, before Christ, he was arguably kind of a big deal. Uh, I'm going to use a couple different, you know, I'm going to translate it for us into, you know, what it would be like today. Paul spoke over four languages. That's actually just literal, right? Uh, He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew Aramaic, and most scholars believe that he knew some form of Latin four languages. He was a brilliant scholar. He was an incredibly successful attorney. As a hobby, he built homes that some of the richest people in the world would want to buy. He was kind of like a modern-day Chip Gaines on top of all of these other things. Paul was a big deal. Yet when we get to Philippians chapter 3, and Paul reflects back on his own life, It's the only time that I'm aware of in Scripture there's actually a cuss word in Scripture, and I'm going to get to it here in just a second. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I was going to read to you a bit more, but I'm going to go ahead and stop there. So again, Paul goes on, and as he's describing his pedigree, I've already translated, I don't need to do it again. He's a really, really big deal back in ancient times. By anybody's measure of the term, he was successful. Uh, when people imagined who they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, Paul would have been somebody that they could have named, especially if you were a Jewish male back in the time. And again, it's the only time that I believe Scripture actually has a cuss word. In our English translation, it's found there in verse, uh, I believe, 9, um, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Well, that Greek word there, it's only used one time in all of Scripture. It's the Greek word skubalong. And I'll just put it this way, rubbish is a very polite translation. Uh, if we go through and we look at it, back in ancient writings, most of the people when they used it are either using uh, a vulgar joke describing human excrement or literally describing human uh, excrement, say, in, you know, the remnants of a battle of war or whatnot. There were plenty of other words Paul could have chose. Yet he looks at his life, he looks at his accomplishments, he looks at the thing that the world would look at and say, look at how amazing these things are, look at how great I was, and he says what? They're scubalong. They're scubalong compared to knowing and living for Jesus. And in our culture, uh, our culture that is so concerned with performance, our culture that is so concerned with making sure that we look good, that we have the next piece of technology, that we have the biggest and best house, that we have more and more and more and more. And our culture that is very, very concerned about experience. I think the uh, Apostle Paul's lesson in his own spiritual journey, in his own spiritual story, frankly, I think it's timely. What are we to learn there from, from Philippians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3? Well, I think here's what we learn. That no matter what you put your value in, whether it's who my parents are, whether it's who my children are, perhaps my siblings or my neighbors, uh, it's not about what you can do, but about who you can know, right? It's not about your family members. It's not about whatever work that you do. It's not about whatever field God has called you into. It's not about your performance and the things that you can perform well at. All of those things, they're important. Please don't hear me say that uh, the work and the relationships and the life that we have, that they're not important. They are important. But what comes first? What is the most important thing that any of us can get, that any of us can grasp, is that we would know this, that we would know the love of God through Jesus Christ. You see, that's what changed everything for Paul. We're told uh, in the book of Acts 
that he literally supernaturally runs into Jesus on the road. Jesus speaks to him and his story, his faith journey, his life. It will never be the same. And that's my hope for us, that we would continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Story Presbyterian Church, the Lord Jesus loves you. The Lord Jesus took on flesh. The Lord Jesus knows your struggles. He suffered and he died for you, and then he rose again. So that one day, the end of the story, no matter how hard it gets in the here and now, no matter what we experience in the here and now, all of it is scubalong compared to knowing how great and awesome and wonderful, or as Paul puts it, all of it doesn't matter compared to the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God. Jesus Christ gives us a reason to get out of bed. Jesus Christ gives us a reason to be a good dad, a good mother, a good husband, a good wife, a good worker wherever work that we do, and frankly, the best of whatever hobbies God calls us to. Jesus Christ, he doesn't take us away from those things, but he gives us a reason for those things. Parent your children that they may know Jesus as Lord. Love your own parents, that they may know that Jesus is Lord. Work in such a way that your boss and co-workers may know that Jesus is Lord. Live your life in such a way that the most important thing in it is that Jesus is your Lord. Again, oftentimes, I think our view of God is too small. He doesn't care about our work life. He doesn't care about our home life. He doesn't care about things. He cares about all of it. He cares about your struggles. He cares about the times that you are living in abundance and times that you are living in great need. He cares about all of it. And he is bigger than we can ever imagine. May our faith grow this year as our vision of who God is grows. Let's pray.